Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. Even though George Bellows' The Lone Tenement was painted in 1909, it really looks like any city you might wander through today. And that's true in a number of different ways. For one, the colors balance light and dark, natural and man-made, new and old, blues and yellows mixed with browns and grays. The New York of the early 20th century, where Bellows lived and worked, was also a study in contradictions. In the lone tenement, a brand new bridge, one we know now as the Koch-Queensboro Bridge or the 50th Street Bridge in Queens, stands so far in the foreground, it's almost like we're standing right beneath it. And underneath that marvel of engineering and public works, there are clusters of people in this painting, warming themselves around a fire, standing near puddles and dark clothing, and a single tenement, looking decades older than its surroundings, and a great deal smaller, is front and center, its top floors beginning to be warmed by the sun. George Bellows would certainly have known the social connotations of such a tenement, a dirty eyesore crowded with impoverished people, but he's made it look beautiful. For jazz musician Maria Schneider, that juxtaposition of the ugliness and beauty, dark and light, was resonant with a similarly complicated period of her life. So you were asked to pick a a work out of the gallery How did you um, land on this one? Well, I came to this a little bit through a back door. In my own uh, composition, I've been really inspired by a book by Robert Henry called The Art Spirit. And he led the Ashcan School of Art. And so I really wanted to find an artist that was deeply inspired and uh, affected by the teachings of Robert Henry. And so I landed on George Bellows' The Lone Tenement. Why did you, I mean, what is it about Henry that captured you? Oh, my book, uh, my art spirit book, has so many little bookmarks in it. I ripped up pieces of paper, uh, flipping pages over, highlighting things. It's three times as thick as the actual book. There are so many things that 
are analogous to music. For instance, uh, in the world of jazz, uh, people can become so uh, caught up in technique that they forget what the end to technique is. And so Robert Henry says things like, your eye does not follow the muscle and the bone making the arm, but it follows the spirit of the arm. And so things like that music, it's exactly the same. He talks about background and foreground, that um, the background is what the viewer sees of the background while focused on the foreground. In music, it's the same thing. If you want something, a melody or a soloist or something to be in the foreground, you really have to think carefully about the images that are behind that or the sounds, see, even I'm talking in terms of visual, the sounds that are behind it so that it enhances or and doesn't distract unless you want it to distract in a way that it creates a relationship with the background that has its own kind of intensity to it. There, there are a thousand quotes in this book that are just extraordinary for understanding uh, musical concepts. So when you first saw this painting, what were the first things that you saw? Well, the color, um, just the, the, the beautiful brightness of the color, but then the, the other tones in the front that are, are darker and le- less vivid. Um, and the shapes, uh, the shapes of, um, you know, the, the intensity of the structures in it. And then just that there's obviously a story going on uh, emotionally for these people in relationship to what's going on here. And also this bridge, by the way, this was the building of the Queensboro Bridge. I went over that bridge every day for many years um, when I lived in Astoria. So there was a little connection there too. Before we get to the piece of music um, that is associated with this piece for you, what kind of sounds do you think are in this picture? Oh, gosh. I don't know that I would look at this picture and, and say it equates to specific sounds. Um, although we, I'm, I'm sure if you imagine this picture, you've got the boat going by and, you know, in, in a very literal sense, um, there are all sorts of things that signs of life that create kind of a background and a foreground, whatever is going on amongst these immigrants in the front against the landscape of the city. But I don't see it so literal as that. Um, for me, it's more about the sense of structure and then emotion and the fact that it's art that isn't just for the art's sake, but it's also telling a story of people. It's relating to something with these people. Not that I necessarily know what those things are, but I can feel that and see that. For more on George Bellows and the Ashcan School of Painters, we turn to Charlie Brock, Associate Curator of American and British Paintings at the National Gallery of Art. Bellows would walk the city, um, and he would, uh, you know, from top to bottom, Manhattan, 
and he would not sketch. There's, there are very few sketches of his paintings, especially these early paintings. He apparently worked from memory. So he would, he would go out and survey these areas and then come back to the studio and recreate them out of his memory. Um, and this curious tenement, um, it's, it doesn't, there's no photographs that, that would tell us that that tenement is there. There were tenements in the area. So in my mind, he's kind of invented this scene. Um, the area under the bridge in reality was probably totally desolate. But he's almost taken something from another uh, from another part of his trips to look at the site, and he's brought it into the and made it central to the site. Um, and again, it's it, it's kind of a ghost of a building. It's isolated, and you get the sense that's the mystery of the painting: is what is, what is it doing there? Is it a vestige? Does it exist at all? And um, and so he he kind of summons up uh, the whole spirit of the of the bridge. Uh, and what was there before and what is disappearing. Um, and the way he depicts the, the people who have apparently been displaced by this bridge um, that are uh, kind, they're kind of like almost ghost-like. It goes from a very active group around a fire, sitting around a fire at the left to keep themselves warm, um, to these kind of little sketch, more sketchier figures just below the tenement, to the far right, just these little almost dots and dashes um, and so they're almost like wraith-like figures uh, on the right. So you get a sense of a very a transient, tenuous community, but nonetheless a fascinating uh, community, uh, especially, again, again on the left, we have all the warmth of the fire and the camaraderie of people gathered around the fire. In the middle, it looks to me like you might have kids playing, throwing a baseball back and forth. It's hard to exactly read that. But, but at the... But at the end, you're left with this sense—the sense of here's a boarded-up tenement, and here are the here are these displaced people, um, and so it creates a very it creates a very um, intense mood of uh, of both presence um, and and absence uh, that that come into play because of this this new incredible bridge that crosses the East River. So it's very contemporary. He's painting the life life of the city as it's changing. Almost all of Bella's paintings speak to current the current state of the city, and that includes its tenement communities. The tenement houses themselves were were seen as needing to be. They were crowded. They were uh, they were dangerous. They were places where disease ran rampant, and there were a lot of reform movements uh, at that time to, of course, create better conditions for the immigrant communities. So. He's diving into the really the most current types of issues and topics and subjects of the day, but he's coming at it from this very unique um, and oblique and 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 fascinating angle. So, what do you hear when you look at this painting? I I hear the kind of maybe conversations. Again, if you if you step into the picture and you're all of a sudden you're on the same ground as the figures uh, in the foreground, there's there's a couple, there's a pair that are kind of set apart that are clearly conversing, um, and the and then of course gathered around the fire, you you the fire of course is kind of crackling, uh, so you you get a sense of that, um, and so yeah, I think you're you're hearing um, uh, the life of the city. Uh, from a very curious point, you're not in you're not in the midst of a crowd, but you're hearing maybe maybe boats on the river. There's a steamboat 
uh, you know, sounds across the river, maybe filtering across uh, to Manhattan, uh, across the East River. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, because it is a rather big open space, I think you're kind of getting a really interesting um, auditory landscape. Um, and I think it, it evokes, it makes, it grabs your imagination uh, and evokes, I think, works on, on many different um, uh, sensory uh, levels. I think this, this, this idea of art for life's sake was essentially, I think, creating paintings that were literally as alive as life itself. And so it had, it was, I think these paintings are meant to have these strong sensory, um, uh, you know, to convey these strong sensory experiences of sight and sound and, and touch and taste and, and even smell. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's really, again, fulfilling that dream or lesson of Henry to, to make art that really is as vital and lively as life itself. Uh, not something apart from life, but just something that is part and parcel of life. How do we arrive then at the piece that you chose to accompany this painting? Well, this piece was a piece that uh, I had been commissioned by uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center to write something, and I was really struggling. And when I do commissions, generally, I'm just uh, dreading it. <laughs> Most composers love commissions. I can't stay. Yeah, wait, let's stay there for just one second real quick. Why were you dreading it? Oh, the pressure. I put such a pressure on myself that there's an expectation and that it has to be good and it has to be something different and people are wanting to know what I'm going to do and I don't yet know what that thing is and I put so much pressure on myself that I just implode and um, and it's... It, it, it's it's amazing the negative self-talk <laughs> that artists give to themselves when they're or at least me when I'm in that state um, and this particular piece was just kind of really putting me through a rough time and I had wanted to do a piece I'd been listening to flamenco music like crazy and I, I was just so enamored with it and I had been really wanting to sort of funnel my musical voice through this thing I'd been feeling the the wish to do that and um, but I was struggling with it and as the deadline was looming I was uh, suddenly diagnosed with breast cancer and it was just an incredibly scary and difficult time my best friend was dying of breast cancer as was her sister so I had been around um, just that and seeing that and I was just I, the, the, the level of fear and, and uh, angst within me was just unfathomable it was I was just so completely freaked out and um, this, this deadline and the rehearsal that I was supposed to be having was all coming up it was going to be like you know three weeks away or something like that and I was panicking, and so there was a particular night where I had had some notes written down, but not a lot, and I was really struggling, and I um, I was sitting here at night, and it, it was in the dark, and I was just feeling like a, 
like an electricity going through my hands. The stress was so much, and I said to myself, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna call up Lincoln Center tomorrow, tell them I'll do the concert. They can keep the commission money. I can't possibly deliver this commission. I'm feeling too much stress. For sure, they will understand. I've got to go through a surgery and everything before this thing happens. And I had." I think I, I was going to have like 10 days before that was going to happen. And mm. and so I sat down at, I, I when I decided I, I would take that pressure off of myself, uh, there was just such a tremendous relief. It was just like, oh, my God, okay, okay. But then there was still the fear there. And I looked over at the piano, and the music was on the piano, and just I had no place to go. You, you know, there was just no place to go within myself and so I went over to the piano and I just started looking at what was there and started playing it and all of a sudden the relationship to the notes changed it was like I was being tossed around the the surface of a stormy sea and all of a sudden when I started playing the music I, it was like a submarine going down underneath and I could see the horrible outcome. I could see everything that could possibly happen, death, any of it. But somehow I was submerged underneath. And in when I got in the music, I realized it was like this lifetime, lifeline, a lifeline to um, something that felt m more eternal for me, something that felt like it truly mattered and it just felt like I had to do that music for me it was it was a different thing it had always been for everyone else worrying about what they're going to think and suddenly I didn't care what anybody thought it was purely about what I needed to do to get through this moment and so of course I didn't cancel the commission I hung on to it and I worked like crazy, practically morning, noon, and night for those days because it was the only thing that kept me sane. What do you think it was? Was it the, the, the act of creating new music that was healing for you? Or was it the, the music itself? I think it was that the music helped draw me into that state that Henry talks about where um, it felt like the most meaningful thing in the world because what I was struggling with up, up till that moment was what I see in this bellows painting. I was, I was walking around and everybody else seemed oblivious. Every day felt it was sunny, people were laughing, talking about the things they were doing and I just wanted to scream, don't you realize we're all gonna die? <laughs> you know, it was like this feeling of everybody being completely oblivious to this gravity that's going on, which is what I see in that painting. There's this gravity in front with everybody just going on about their day, you know, and, and, this, and the sun and the beautiful day, and that's the way I felt. But when I went into that um, space, suddenly it wasn't lonely. It felt like it was a space that connects all of us it felt like an it sort of an eternal place. I think it's a, a very kind of, um, I think everybody can relate to when you get into 
a zone, whether it's meditative, you're doing work and suddenly the hours peel away and you feel that deep joy. And when you encounter that moment and you, you create out of that moment, out of that place within yourself, there's a magic there. I believe that that's when music most connects with people because I believe that when you pull something artistic out of that place and other people hear it, they recognize it because that place is some sort of place where we connect. And I can't explain it any more than that, but that's how it feels to me. Here's Maria Schneider's Bolero, Sola y Rumba, Uninterrupted.
So tell me about this piece of music itself. This is a rumba? It's called Bolaria Solea y Rumba, which is, uh, there were three um, flamenco forms. The, um, a, the first, which has a um, kind of a rhythmic feel to it that they they call hemiola. It's sort of the I want to be in America, where the yeah. one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's it's like playing with the accents of groupings of six that create all sorts of syncopation. Um, and the flamenco aspect of it has scales that have sort of a, a little bit of a darkness tinge to them. Um, the solea, the middle movement, which is um, the movement that has this long drawn out solo by Donnie McCaslin, and he was actually nominated for a Grammy Award for the, his solo, and it, it, it is extraordinary. Um, the solea is a slow, slow, um, kind of brooding, dark um, uh, uh, form in flamenco, but that speeds up towards the end. And so underneath uh, Donnie, I created this um, this background that just slowly builds and builds and builds and then just swallows them up. And then the last part, the rumba, is more hopeful. And I ended up uh, bringing in uh, uh, the voice of Luciana Souza um, to sing wordless vocals. And there's a soloist, Greg Gisbert, on flugelhorn. And it has a much more positive, hopeful uh, theme, and it modulates to different keys, meaning it changes keys that keep lifting. So it kind of it lifts out of that darkness. And I, I guess that was um, the whole piece was just sort of processing for me everything I was going through. I was interested I found it really fitting that you chose to have your vocalist do a, a wordless solo because when I look at the painting, um, you can't see any faces. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, like to a certain extent, the wordless solo goes right along with this painting where you're so far from the human figures, you can probably hear conversation going on, but you can't hear the words themselves that's interesting i think you're right about that yes um so i i wondered you described the painting as telling a story and i felt like your piece told a story in three acts um and i wonder if you had meant for the, the the music to be in a way narrative um, I no, i don't think i did but it sort of came out that way and i, I think that's that's uh the thing that happens sometimes is that um that what comes out sometimes when your intention isn't so much to make the narrative if you're coming from that place that i describe you can't help it because it's coming from your deepest place and so many times in my music i feel that later when i look back i say oh i see now what that was about that was, uh, you You don't know those things when you're going through it, and the music teaches you. It's sort of, sometimes I think about the, um, you know, when the child psychologist has the child paint a drawing of their home, and <laughs> it has, yeah. you know, the mother with a 
teeth, you know, the father, <laughs> the father with a suitcase or something, you know, and and you and and then the psychologist says, well, you know, there's a lot going on here, clearly, and I think with music, it's it's the same way for. A, a musician that sometimes you look back and then you learn about yourself through your music. It's it's sort of like, um, yeah, teaching you about yourself, self, things you don't know. I think we work out a lot through our art. I think it's also one of the reasons that art and music in this country, it's it would be so important to have those things be so central in our educational systems because they teach so much. I mean, forgetting like music, math, and all these things, but also just processing emotion and um, learning about yourself and connecting with others in the case of music. Um, in the case of jazz, it's, it really teaches about democracy in a way. It's the the art of listening and not coming in with an agenda, there, um, but listening and being changed by what somebody else says, and so the, it's art is it's important, it's powerful. What makes flamenco the right music for this painting? Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm not sure it's <laughs> the right music for this painting. It was it was the uh, right music for me at the time, and and it was fitting for me, I guess, at the time that I was so I'd done such a deep dive into flamenco, which is largely expressing pains and everything. Which, by the yeah. way, you know, if you think about immigrants, you know, it's a story. You know, this sort of displaced, not um, being accepted and there's this pain and suffering and so it was it was sort of the perfect um, music for me to process what I was going through but if I think about it actually it makes sense here it's just that um, flamenco has such a strong connection to Spain you know and and this is very American but still it's a, there's a, something similar there I, I mean, I may be reading too much into it, but my thought was that flamenco is a, a music of the people, right? It's a, it's a more popular form, and this uh, painting is the same. It's supposed, to, it's showing um, the, the people themselves, average people who would listen to their own folk music, possibly, um, framed within this incredibly expensive and advanced bridge. I mean, I felt like it was actually a relatively inspired choice. Yeah, it's, um, it's beautiful. I love it. I'm just looking at it right now. The the man in the front whispering something in the other man's ear, you know, in the face, and then the others huddled around a fire there. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, you can really dive into it and see so much story and personal story inside of that little moment in the bigger city. It's difficult not to draw parallels between the cost of this bridge, um, which at the time was an extremely expensive undertaking, and the poverty of the people in this picture, and, and also the reputation of tenements themselves. They were known as a place where, as you say, they were full of often immigrants, they were full of people who were disempowered both politically and financially, and 
people who were sort of on the edge of crisis and catastrophe all the time. Was he a political artist? This was a very difficult question to answer with Bellows. Um, you, I think that he was political in the sense that he was he was picturing these communities that and and representing them in a way that they they hadn't been represented. Uh, you know, he's not pointing to the heroic view of this bridge. He's pointing you. He's pointing you to the life of the city, and the life of the city is, of course. You might almost say primarily it's immigrant communities in terms of numbers. So he's always gravitating uh, towards, uh, you know, the most, the places that are teeming with life. He's a great picture. uh, He's a great painter of crowds. But there is a kind of detachment, you know, it's a bird's eye view. And, And I think that is, I think that's where this whole notion of the relationship of art and politics is something that's hard to gauge in Bella's work. I think it's one of the things that makes his work uh, fantastic. And and uh, but but also he uh, and he was involved with um, progressive movements in New York. Um, but I think, like many artists, I don't think he wanted his art or could or really just being an artist. Of course, it was the art that that drove everything. Um, it, it and and it, and he and he did not want his art to be simply um, part. Uh, beholden to a, a political agenda. And that gets you into difficult territory because the problems were very serious. Uh, he was from a, a solid middle gra- middle class conservative background in Ohio. So the degree of his uh, involvement um, is, and, um, and concern is something that's always in question with Bellows. But um, I think it's it's a question that we, is we can we can kind of explore and and kind of come to our own conclusions about as we as we look at a painting like this. So it sets the stage for uh, really American modernism across the century just by breaking opening up new possibilities in every Thanks once again to Maria Schneider for joining us and sharing her music. You can learn more about her and George Bellows at the National Gallery of Arts website, nga.gov podcast. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Arts Music Department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Arts Head of Music Programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, be well.